0: to properly worship and love you, to know you, and to know the power of your, res- your son's resurrection. We look forward this morning, Lord, to you teaching us, giving us instruction and correction that we might honor you in all that we do. Father, we pray that uh, this morning's study would be profitable and effective in our lives. And we will thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week or last time we were together, we finished up with chapter 5. So we'll be starting chapter 6. That seems to follow, does it not? It's, it's a common core counting. So if you'll open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read the whole 18 verse chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So we'll finish, we'll, we'll actually read verse 21 because Paul starts this, this chapter starts with the, uh, with the word and, which seems to imply something just happened. And it did. The most, one of the most beloved verses in all of the New Testament is what happened. He made him who knew no sin, verse 21 of chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold, we live as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them. And walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So, Paul is going to continue his defense of his apostleship in this chapter, and of his love, his reminder of his love for the Corinthians, for their church, for, their, for the individuals in that church, in verses one through ten, his defense becomes very personal, and he indirectly, or maybe even directly, you could say, gives a history of the difficulties he has undergone to deliver the gospel. And then, in verses eleven through eighteen, there will be a series of cautions and encouragements, and he'll caution the Corinthians not, essentially, not to be allied with evil in any way, shape, or form. And we'll see. Uh, some great exhortation about relationship. So digging right into chapter 6, verse 1 says, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The original text, by the way, does not have the words in him or with him. Those are in your Bible, they should be either in italics or Lighter, I think they're probably in italics. They're not there. The translators supplying them, however, were correct because it should be noticed in verse 19 of chapter 5, we have the antecedent to this verse. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so it is unbelievably that believers work together with the sovereign God of the universe to bring the gospel to the world. I still marvel at that why doesn't he just flick us out of the way and do it right but he doesn't but he doesn't the fact is god works through believers and he is at work bringing all believers to him and sanctifying them philippians 2:13 says for it is god who has at work who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure he's at work in us right now so there And so there is a sense, and a very real one, in which believers are doing the work God has committed to them as ambassadors um, for him. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is behind every effective outworking of the Scriptures in the lives of believers, whether converting them or sanctifying them or using them. Fearing that his labor might possibly have been in vain in some ways, Paul urges that, actually he begs them, to hear the gospel of forgiveness, to believe, and then to be transformed by day by day by its power and and by its ability to change believers as they are sanctified each and every day, working out their their salvation with fear and trembling. Many of the events that happened in Corinth over the years had brought great concern to Paul, and apparently there were some events that gave him pause about some of the people in the church at, at Corinth. There were false teachers, even false apostles, even fake apostles who were attempting, they were attempting to lure the very, to lure many away, I guess I should say, from the truth. Paul would not stand by and watch this happen. He would not stand by and watch his work be undone. Thus, much of this letter. As in any congregation, there are those who are saved, And who are progressing in their sanctification. There are those who are saved and are stunted in their sanctification. And then there are those who are unsaved, but speak the language of the saved. Later in this epistle, he will challenge those very people to this. He'll say, test yourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, chapter 5, chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Paul did not want the unbelievers in the church to miss the grace of God in salvation. He wanted them to trust Christ. Neither did he want the believers in the church to miss the grace of God in their ongoing everyday sanctification. He wanted them to to be in that grace. There was legalism and profligate living. Some who were unsaved, were being led astray, and some who were saved were also being led astray and stunted in their growth by the influence of this false te- teaching. And this is what he was warning against here in, in the beginning of chapter 6. And so in, in verse 2, he, he flushes this out a little bit more. For he says, the Scripture says, For he says, at the acceptable time... By the way, who knows when it's the acceptable time? Did you look at your watch one day and went, well, it's time to get saved now. I better find a preacher. Tell me the gospel. Thank you very much. Okay, I believe. No, God decided when the acceptable time was. And he, in his grace, changed your mind, changed our minds. So the scripture says, for he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So what is an acceptable time for salvation. Now. I, I actually have witnessed to people who lit, actually told me, you know, I'm just having too much fun. <laughs> stay away from buses. Stay away from cars. Stay away from food. Stay away from rain. Stay away from dogs. Stay away from cats. Stay away from... Better stay away from oxygen because there's stuff in it. But, yeah, I'm having too much fun? That was nuts. Um, So now is the acceptable time. God had poured his grace out on this church, on the Corinthian church, and some had trusted Christ, some were growing, but many were not listening. or I should say some were not listening. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 49, 8, and he applies it to the Corinthians, pleading with them not to frustrate God's grace, but to respond to him. Isaiah 55, 6 commands this. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near." And Paul would that the Corinthians would, in their various stages, seek the Lord. This verse makes it clear that verse 1 is not talking about losing your salvation, but rather not responding to the grace of God and trusting Christ in the first place. Further, some of the Corinthians were in danger of frustrating the grace of God in their sanctification because they were looking to legalistic means or legalistic teaching from the false apostles. This, indeed, would be a vanity. And it would be a waste of time. And so Paul is warning. These are some of the warnings, not quite like the warning chapters in in Hebrews. He's warning directly the individuals right there in the body. Don't miss this. Pay attention. The Word of God is there for your correction, for your instruction, for your comfort, for your edification, for your building. Those of you that are saved, respond to it. Read it. Study it. Pay attention to it. Get counsel. Grow in, your, grow in your walk with the Lord so that you don't frustrate the, the grace of God. So he didn't want that frustration to happen. And it's a frustration even to us when we can't seem to move forward, isn't it? When you're, you're, you're growing in the Lord and then it just seems like it's stunted. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was. There was a, a famous contator, commentator. I think it was Adam Clark. I should have looked this up. So it's going to be fake news for a minute here. One great commentator, at any anyway, rate, he went through a very, what he thought was a dry time. And out of that dry time came his commentary. <laughs> so you just never know what God is doing in your life when you think things are at a standstill. God is always at work. There's no scripture that says at certain times in your salvation and sanctification, i take a nap. God doesn't take naps. He's always at work to will and to do of his good pleasure in you every day, all day long, twenty-four hours a day. He never tires. Any comments about one and two? So verse three, Paul says this now. We're, here we are. We're giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. So <laughs> guess what? No means. Yeah. None. Nothing. Zero, zip, nada, not some, or a little bit, or a figurative no, but we're, we're doing, what we are doing is giving no cause that the ministry be discredited. Paul was especially aware of how easily the proclamation of the gospel can be compromised by a lack of integrity on his part. (laughs) They picked him apart to begin with, and he wasn't lacking integrity. If he did lack integrity, don't you think they would have zeroed in that on that like a laser beam and it would have been published throughout the land as much as they could? He was careful in all that he did to make sure that there was no possibility of an offense that might cause, that might cause an undermining of the spread of the gospel. He is about to walk the Corinthians through the catalog of difficulties he suffered in bringing the gospel to the world and in everything that he suffered. It's not like Paul had a yellow brick road gospel experience. His best life then. It was difficult. And he's going to detail them, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. In everything that he suffered, everything that Paul suffered, he remained faithful to the truth of the gospel. There's always something. There's always something that people can find in our lives to fault us for. It's just that because none of us are perfect. Some of us are far less perfect than others. But there's always something people can find. Paul is saying that I'm not going to give you things. I'm not going to, not going to compromise my integrity in the proclamation of the gospel. <coughs> it's important that we stay true to God's word. And so what does that mean? Does that mean when we have friends who are struggling with the proper interpretation of a text, especially in these days, where the the Scripture seems to ram into culture every day. There's a roadblock for Scripture and culture every day, whether it has to do with homosexuality, um, the roles of men and women, bringing up children, whatever you can think of. The Scripture is derided every day. And a man of integrity, a Paul of integrity, isn't going to back away from proclaiming the truth. That is not what he's talking about. He's not going to soft-pedal the proclamation of the truths of God's Word. They're going to be maybe delivered as gently and kindly as can be delivered, but they're going to be delivered with force, verve, and and seriousness. Because when we back away from the difficult truths of Scriptures, the Scriptures, we kill people. Long-term, we destroy them. Because the Scripture didn't put... God didn't put these things in His Word because He needed filler. They are about the changing of the human heart. And what is necessary is in here. And our proclamation needs to be done with integrity, but that integrity will never back away from the hard truths of Scripture. So... The purity of the church itself is tremendously important as well, corporately, so that if the world chooses to ascribe evil to the church, it must do so knowing that it is a made-up evil. Now, there's plenty of blame to go around. The point is, Paul says, I am not giving them occasion for that. I am living a life of integrity. Unfortunately, the world confuses many of the religious folk of the day In the false religions, with Christianity, we get lumped in with just about every brand of strange thing out there, uh, because you can basically call yourself a Christian. I mean, (laughs) I'm trying to. There, there are certain tribes in other parts of the world that are Christian, and that's because of their history. It has nothing to do with their salvation, but they're lumped in, and so we have this massive name Christian that's applied to plenty of things that are not Christian at all. And we get the blame for it. It's okay. God knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Yes. No. And it's a hard, it seems like a harsh thing to say, but the alternative is to let them die in their sins. And that's not loving at all. So what we have to do is be able to proclaim the gospel in a manner that That will reach the lost, but that doesn't mean compromising its truth. Um, Let it not be said of us that we have contributed to the negative image of the church, though. Um, It is one thing to stand firmly for the truth, and today it is so much needed. It is another to be harsh, critical, vicious, and unkind to those who are in need of the gospel. You can be firm without being a jerk. I'm still learning that, but you can I've seen people do it. I've seen people do it. And those are the kinds of people that we need to, to ask. Tell me how you did this. Help me Help me learn how to do this properly to, to help people that need this kind of help but do it in a manner that at least removes the offense that I would bring. So that's what Paul was doing. He was not bringing offense on the gospel so that the gospel would have as much of a reach as possible. So any questions or comments about that? And for those of you that have developed um, effective methods of proclaiming God's word and and working with people who are otherwise, today it seems like it's, you get, it's, it's, there must be a degree in getting offended in colleges. Because it's, it's become epidemic. Um, You can offend people doing nothing. You can offend people doing very, very little today. And I, 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 Okay, I'm kind of getting off the subject here, but to some, for me it least like it looks like lots of it is contrived offense. It isn't real. offense is when you knock a woman to the ground and take her purse that's that's an offensive thing To say she's got an ugly purse get over it <laughs> You know just get over it Somebody I was gonna say that it's such a blessing such a blessing Hebrews I think it's 13. It's in chapter 13. He is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He never, never, never changes. Human nature doesn't change. The way buildings are built changes, but the humans building them, they don't change. How we interface with society doesn't change. doesn't change how how we respond to each other. That's what the Scripture is true about. Well, the Scripture is true about everything, but it's human nature that doesn't change. We want to think it does. Oh, well... We don't think like those barbaric people back in the bronze age, yeah we're in some ways we're far less civilized. Next question you know we'll kill we how many babies did they kill a year out of convenience, probably a few. I, I doubt that they killed sixty million in forty five years. Any other comments before we move on? but in everything, verse three comm- or excuse me verse four, commending ourselves as Leaders in the church, no, servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, and in distresses. So, demonstrating to the Corinthians that the grace of God was not in vain in his life, Paul begins to catalog in the next few verses the life of a believer. Now, this looks like it's, this is just Paul. No, some of the specific happenings, some of the specific circumstances were unique to his life, at least Kind of unique, but everyone in this room has not made it this far without some experiences like what Paul went through. You just don't get through this life without getting tripped up a bit, don't you? Do you? You get mud slung at you. You get you make mistakes, hate, anger, all of those kinds of things. So. This is kind of a catalog of what can happen in the, in the Christian life. And I see it as Paul vindicating himself somewhat to the Corinthians, but also kind of on a second level, letting them know when you go through these things, here's a good example of how to get through them. So it describes what a true, what, what true discipleship encompasses. If the shepherd was put on a cross, why would the sheep expect to live in palaces? Verse four and five detail some of the difficulties. Verses 6 and 7, some of the delights. And then in verses 8 through 10, he uses what I call a positive-negative restatement, explaining how even in the difficulties of life, God can bring good. uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29. So here Paul commends himself as a servant, but he doesn't even use the first person while he demonstrates that he has been put to just about every test that can come to someone. He includes the ministers that traveled with him. They went through some of the very same things. The ones that prayed for him and indeed everyone that was involved in the ministry of the gospel to which paul had given himself nobody gets out of this life unscathed in his his first claim is to be a servant and then that's followed by the character quality of perseverance he says in everything commending ourselves as servants of god in much endurance so the word endurance means steadfast steadfastness constancy endurance uh, patience um it's a voluntary putting oneself under and living under the difficulties and not not kicking against them. Not, I'm not saying you don't try to take steps to, to undo some difficulties that are happening in your life. But when they come, you're not kicking and screaming all the way through. We know plenty of people who do that, who whenever the least little thing happens, the complainers, the offended, the, the perpetually offended. So the concept of endurance is at once one of the most difficult and challenging, and yet one of the most wonderful concepts facing a believer. The idea is is of remaining faithful and steadfast to the truths of the gospel under any and all conditions. Let me repeat that. It is remaining faithful and steadfast to the truths of the gospel under any and all conditions. Paul remained faithful to the work that God had committed to him throughout his entire life. How did he end his life? We all know that. I mean, I'm asking questions that you all know. But did he end it in a condominium somewhere with a pension? I think he was beheaded, if I remember right. That's kind of a miserable ending, isn't it? So, and when I, I, I complain about having shoes that don't fit right sometimes. And he will detail... Uh, the incredible difficulties that he went through in his life in these next few verses, not, not in, uh, in great detail. I, say, I get the wrong word. He will catalog, but not necessarily in great detail, some of the difficulties he went through and some of the blessings that had accrued to him. And so he will detail some of them in the next few verses. So the first one in verse 4 is in afflictions, flipsis. An interesting Greek word, it means a pressing together, a squeezing, uh, being caught in a tight place. Anybody in here? I don't want, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you're claustrophobic, you know what I'm talking about. You get pressed into a tight place and you've got to get out. My brother was claustrophobic. We, um, one time we had to dig under the foundation of our house, and we got you know in a ways, and pretty soon I, I lost my help. And I'm thinking, Mom, Steve's not helping. Well, he doesn't do very well in tight places. That was a sneaky way to get out of digging under the foundation. But it really wasn't. It just freaked him out. He would get in a tight place and, and he was a big boy. If you got in his way, he was going over you or through you or whatever was necessary. He, do you remember Steve? Yeah. We were about the same size, even though he was younger than me, but from about the age of 16 on. And, uh, he went through me a few times. It, he got pressed and you have to get out. That's the kind of idea of this being pressed. It's a, it's a, and it's, it's imposed from the outside. It's things that constrict us. It's tribulation. It's dis- of distress. It's not just a, a trapped word. It's a trapped word that includes being freaked out, I guess, in some ways. Paul never got freaked out. So wrong, wrong choice of adjectives there. It's a trap word that puts you in a place where you're, you do everything you can to get out of it because you're, it's dangerous. This is spiritual, physical, or emotional suffering. And it is inevitable in life. The next word he uses is hardships, and this word, anake, is something that is caused by circumstances, Um, and it's calamity, dire straits. It's, uh, the idea is a bent, uplifted arm putting you in a bad place. In classical Greek, many words take their stem from this this particular, the, the stem from this word. And the implied idea is that it's almost like torture. This is not the word for torture, but it's almost there. Hardships are the general difficulties that one faces in a fallen world. And by the way, the idea is of inevitability. It's interesting how much how pregnant some of these words are. It's going to happen. Get ready is what Paul is is, using, some of the words the Holy Spirit is using here. One cannot escape hardships and gain the character quality of endurance. You must meet them head on. You must meet them head on, and that's what Paul did. The next one is distresses. Again, a narrowness of place. Paul was obsessed with confinement. Um, He was in prison. He was in prison. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Distresses refers to be confined in a narrow space and is descriptive of trials and tribulations from which there is no escape. These are things that you can't get away from. These, the, the, the thesaurus in that, when I was looking that up, these are stresses and trials and tribulations that you can't get away from. And in the thesaurus, the next word was family. I'm kidding. No, family is wonderful. But it can. Those are, Aren't those your hardest trials? People you don't know, they don't know how to trip your buttons, but your family does. So the first three terms, these first three terms describe difficulties one will encounter and especially refer to those inner turmoils that result from those difficulties. They require endurance. Paul endured these. The Holy Spirit has entered your life and will empower you to endure these things, and to come out the other side, as it says in Romans, more than a conqueror. You're not just going to survive. God will make sure as you follow through scripturally, you will come out more than a conqueror. Any questions, comments about verse (laughs) 4? This is not, sometimes I think about what people would speak about in a self-help encouragement seminar. This ain't it. This ain't it. You're going to get beat. You're going to be distressed. You're going to be tight. You're going to be inflicted. You're going to be hardships. You can't get away from it. Have a nice day. <laughs> Go and be warm. Be filled. In beatings, number five, verse five, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. So this remarkable endurance that Paul displayed served him well because he endured a great many hardships in bringing the gospel to the world of his time the first hardship he mentions is beatings. Now, this is not a childhood spanking. This is not mom and dad getting the switch out or even maybe occasionally using their hand. This is not what it's talking about. In Second Corinthians chapter 11, this very book here, this very epistle, Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. I don't know if he was using hyperbole there. I don't think so. I think he'd forgotten how many times he'd been beaten. Often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. It's like pieces of um, uh, rebar. It, they didn't have rebar back then, but that's that's kind of a, for the builders in here. That'll give you a picture of what it was like getting beat with. I was stoned, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep, and he endured it. Acts 16, 22-24, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them. I remember reading that through Acts hundreds of times, or dozens of times, whatever it was, and reading this stuff and just kind of reading it, never really thinking about the fact that this was a mob that tried to kill them, beat the living daylights out of them, was only stopped by a... By a um, a Roman centurion, in, some case, in one case. When they had struck and proceeded to beat them with rods, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And I think through means through. I think they got ushered in and door was open and they were slammed into those rooms. So they were in pain, maybe it had broken bones, bruises, blood, Acts 18, 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, you read that and it just sounds like, well, Paul, come with us. No. I imagine he was—he probably—he might have tried to resist. He was probably beaten when that happened. Acts 21, 30 and 32. Then all the city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, A report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once, he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I wonder how long that took. Apparently, he was beaten so often and so many times, he had lost accurate count. How many times have you been beaten? Oh, I don't know, 50, 100. That's kind of the thing. Imprisonments. I'm just kind of trying to get a flavor here of what Paul actually... Because I've read this, I don't know how many times, and never really thought it through. This man really endured by God's grace to bring us the gospel and write 13 books of the New Testament. Acts chapter 16. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Acts chapter 24, 22, 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be exam- examined by scourging. <laughs> not, a, <laughs> not a lie detector test. Here, we're going to find out if you're telling the truth. We're going to beat you. <laughs> so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. People are yelling at you. We're going to beat you and find out why. Okay. Acts 23:35. He said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's, Herod's praetorium. Acts 24, 27. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and wishing to do, do, the, do the Jews a favor, Felix had Paul, left, left Paul imprisoned. Two years. Acts 28:16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So he was imprisoned, but he was, still, but he was allowed to stay, with, to stay with the soldier, but he was still in prison. And then 2 Timothy 1:8. 8. Therefore... Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Of 32 years in ministry, the best guess is that Paul spent between five and a half and six years in prison, or just about 20% of his time as a Christian, so this was no idle statement. Paul knew what the inside of a prison looked like, and prisons in those days were not exactly two-star hotels. One scholar from Wheaton College gives a description of first century imprisonment. So we're going to read through this. Paul may have spent as much as 25% of his time, I came up with a little over 20, but different numbers, (coughs) as a missionary in prison. We know of his brief lockup in Philippi, two years incarceration in Caesarea, and at least another two in Rome. Yet Paul says he experienced far more imprisonments than his opponents. To understand Paul, we need to understand where he spent so much time. Roman imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked and then flogged. A humiliating, painful, and bloody ordeal. The bleeding wounds went untreated. Prisoners sat in painful leg or wrist chains. Mutilated, blood-stained clothing was not replaced, even in the cold of winter. In his final imprisonment, remember, Paul asked for a cloak, presumably because of the cold. Most cells were dark, especially the inner cells of a prison, like the one Paul and Silas inhabited in Philippi. Unbearable cold, lack of water, cramped quarters, And sickening stench from few toilets made sleeping difficult and waking hours miserable. Male and female prisoners were sometimes incarcerated together, which led to sexual immorality and abuse. Prison food, when available, was poor. Most prisoners had to provide their own food from outside sources. When Paul was in prison in Caesarea, Felix the procurator gave orders to the centurion that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Prison food, when available, was poor. I, re- I said that again. Must have, most, because of the miserable conditions, many prisoners begged for a speedy death. Others simply committed suicide. Then there were some privileged ones. All of this could be mitigated to some extent. All of this could be mitigated to some extent if the prisoner was important or paid a bribe uh, as Governor Felix hoped, Paul, hoped to receive from Paul in Caesarea. A prominent individual, or one expected to be released, might be kept under house arrest if he or she could afford the rent. In Rome, where housing prisoners was excessively expensive, Paul was given the privilege of house arrest, and he paid the rent himself, exactly how we don't know. He probably lived in a third-floor apartment. First floors were used for shops. Second floor was expensive. In his final imprisonment in Rome, though, Paul ended his life in woeful conditions, in the woeful conditions of a Roman prison." So that's that's the idea behind being imprisoned. And then the next word, tumults, refers to the riots that often attended Paul's abductions, apprehensions, and imprisonments. It was a civil disturbance and mob violence. It may also refer to the fact that Paul was driven from one place to another, often by the mob spoken of. This would have been a very tumultuous lifestyle. It would not be unusual for even the bravest of men to quail and falter when subjected to these kinds of abuses. A mob is a terrifying thing. It's like a beast with no brain that flails about and tramples everything in its path. I won't get political on this. Labors describes the hard work that... uh, Paul put in in bringing the gospel to the known world. He would often work to the point of exhaustion, and further, he worked with his hands to support himself, as he did as did those who traveled with him, so that he would not be a burden to his churches. To the churches, and then watchings, which describes the sleeplessness, translated in the New American Standard version, occurred both because of the incessant upheaval in his life the hard work and the worry of caring for all the churches that Paul spoke of he said in 2 Corinthians 11:28 apart from such external things all of this tumultuous lifestyle he says there is the daily pressure of me of concern on me of concern for all the churches hunger would refer to the fact that finding food was a daily concern it was not like today where there were fast food joints on every corner the division of labor that we have today had not yet occurred and inexpensive, readily available food was non-existent. Often it is likely that Paul would have gone hungry and the few and far between inns that existed in this time were not exactly a wonderful place to stay. Paul says he gladly endured these for the sake of the gospel. All of these things. In beatings and imprisonments, in tumults and labors and sleeplessness or in watchings, it says in the King James, and in hunger. In purity, verse 6, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. This is like just flipping the book over to some beauty of what comes with the ministry of the gospel, lest I leave you just down in the dumps. Why did we even come today? We're all going to be beaten, afflicted, and we're all going to die. No, no, God has, I know God has a wonderful plan for your life. God knows what he's doing in your life every day. One of the most important character qualities of a minister of God is this character quality of p- purity. Paul was above reproach in his ministry, as should be all believers. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, "...so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world." Does that, is that not remarkable? Do we live in a crooked and perverse generation? You're lights. It's a dark place. And when people are, are groping about, you're one of the lights that they see. That's kind of, a, that's kind of a terrifying in some ways. And then in Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.7, Paul says, Prescribe these things as well to those that you're teaching, he says, so that they may be above reproach. So this, And then now we have a particular reference to knowledge, which is in context with Paul describing his qualification as a minister. So this would be the knowledge of Christ and the gospel in general, divine truth. Study your Bibles. It's important that the light you have be the correct light, that it be, well, I'm I'm not going to mess with the metaphor, that it be real light and not a painting of light. The light you have for the world comes from the scriptures. It does not come from within yourselves. ourselves. The patience described here is a long suffering with people as opposed to circumstances, which is the word used in verse 4, back in 4. Um, that was supomene, which is patience with um, circumstances. This is patience with people. And I think that's probably harder. At least it has been for me. I seem to be able to pretty much endure circumstances, but... People sometimes, and I know they probably have the same problem with me, it just seems more difficult. Circumstances are there. People keep coming at you. <laughs> and, and this is the, a particular word for that. Um, the Corinthians had tried Paul's patience often, and yet he remained true to them. He endured their, their wickedness and unkindness to him. The next word is Kindness. This is an interesting word. Again, the Holy Spirit uses words that are so that that had built up by this time in this language just a, a, a pool of incredible meaning. This is not just a nice person. This Greek word is a word that means useful kindness. This is not someone who's just nice to be around, which we need to be that too. But it's someone who is about the business of meeting people's genuine needs and who is sweet and gracious and self-effacing, as they do it. They like doing it. It's become, and we have those among us, and I am just envious. Can I do that? Can I be envious of a good character quality? I better be careful. But it's just wonderful to be around those kind of people who are serious about helping. They like to do it, and they're good at it. That's this word. And then Paul says, now he says, in the Holy Spirit, he's referring to the fact that it is the indwelling Holy Spirit that empowers him to manifest any of this character, any of this endurance, any of the things that he's doing uh, as a ministry are are a direct result of the Holy Spirit in his life. And then last in this particular verse is the word genuine love or the phrase genuine love. Now, this is interesting. As I studied this, it's a remarkable descriptive phrase. The word Paul uses for love here is agape. And it already means purposeful, thoughtful, directed, selfless service to someone. That's what the word means. It's a giving. It's not just a feeling. Walter Martin used to call that luff. And you spell that L-U-F. And it's useless. It's, It's related to fluff. This is... I'm going to do what's best for you no matter what, and I don't even care if you ever realize it. That's the kind of love it's talking about. It's a purposeful, thoughtful, directed love and a recipient, and, they, and for their benefit only. You care not what comes from it. Then he follows it with an adjective that is a compound of two words, a, an hypocritos. Anybody know what hypocritos means? Sounds like hypocrite? Yeah, not hypocritical. Why would he follow it with that? I don't, I'm not going to get into the depths of this because I'm not qualified, but it seems to me that there's something significant here, that he follows a word that means selfless giving with a word that means don't be a hypocrite while you're doing it. It's a strong strengthening. It's an interesting way that the Greeks had of strengthening an already strong word. So this kind of love is absolutely unconcerned with self and is firmly and decidedly bent on benefiting the object of the love for no selfish reason at all. If the person who is performing the act of love isn't noticed, appreciated, or responded to, it means nothing. This is the kind of love that brings healing and delight to those who receive it. That's unusual. That's an unusual love. It's the love that Christ had for us. How many look at his work of sacrifice on the cross and trample it? We did. I did for many years. And he didn't, he didn't withdraw it. We've got to make it through the next verse. I'm sorry, but we're going to be a little bit late. Uh, and last in verse 7, for today at least, in the word of truth in the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left and we'll finish up with this of course the word of truth is the bible the scripture the word of God the gospel itself is the power of God in Rome in in uh in Romans in verse chapter 1 Paul says for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in Second Timothy, he exalts, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It is this word that we need not to be ashamed of, this word right here. It is the gospel through the Holy Spirit that empowers us. It is the written word of God that is to be taken to the world and that has the power to change lives and convert the soul. All of this is done in the power of God. It cannot be done by man, no matter the tenacity, the talent, nor the brilliance. All that is good comes from the hand of the Father of lights, not from the, from the preacher but from the Father of lights, who who gave the preacher the words. It will be, and the words are in here, not that he, there was only one time of inspiration. One time of inspiration, and that's done. It will be uncomfortable. we got to think about this now. It's going to be uncomfortable to only have the gospel. Well, all I have is the gospel. (laughs) I'm not even going to attempt a metaphor or a simile, because there isn't one. To only have the gospel is to only have everything you need. Everything you need. (laughs) It will be uncomfortable, but it will be deemed antiquated, primitive, behind the times, suitable for the past, but not suitable for now, culturally inappropriate, and many other things, but only the gospel can change hearts. Politics can't do it. Government can't do it. Eloquence and speaking ability can't do it, won't do it. According to the writers of the scriptures, it is Christ and the power of His resurrection only that changes people. Everything else as, as it is said is just details. First Corinthians 2.2, For I determined, Paul said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what needed to be known. Philippians 3.8-10, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Paul fellowshiped with Christ in His sufferings, and he just detailed some of them for us. The weapons of righteousness spoken here have been variously described as the honesty Calvin thought, this is what Calvin thought, they were the honesty and integrity that a Christian has and thus affords him the ability to spread the gospel. Others see it as the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us at salvation. This is more in keeping with the context. I think as we find often the scripture has Double wonderful meanings. This may very well be one of those. Either one of those is a, is a fine understanding of this. But in keeping with the context, this is the righteousness that Christ gave to you at salvation. And it is the subtraction of all of your sins from you at salvation. In, the, in these weapons, the weapons of righteousness are both offense, the right hand, and defense, the left hand. Now, none of these weapons are earthly. They are at the disposal of, and dispensing of the Holy Spirit himself. They are precisely designed to destroy sin, false teaching, wrong thoughts, and bad living, false living. These weapons are to be found in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of god and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of christ and ephesians 6:13 through 18 i'm not going to read it it's the it's the uh, armor of god these weapons are truth which is found in scripture The righteousness of Christ himself, which is imputed to us at salvation. An understanding of and an ability to accurately preach the gospel as presented in the scriptures. The faith that God gives to his children that provides us with the power to believe him for everything he has promised. Salvation itself and bracketing these descriptions again, the sufficient word of God in Ephesians chapter when you read 13 through 18, 6, 13 through 18. Binding Satan. Securing territory, restricting demonic control over places by hedges of protection, auditory confirmation of true and false prophets, holy laughter, etc. They're fake. They're all fake. And they're useless. And they will get us in trouble. The best book on this subject, by the way, second to the Scripture, is one from our own pastor, Truth or Territory, and I commend it to you. All of our weapons are found in Scripture and are put to work in our lives by the grace of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing we are lacking to live a productive, useful life of integrity, proclaiming the gospel and being the lights in the darkness that people can find, can look to. And then what do we do? We don't continue pointing them to ourselves. We point them to Christ in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, such were some of us, but we were washed We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And you did that. It is your grace that empowers us. It is your grace that has saved us. It is your grace that gave us the power and the faith to believe. And we want to commend that grace and that power to others. Let us be students of your scripture. Let us be able to impart its contents in a manner that you will use in the lives of others and we will see the glory of Christ proclaimed in their lives as well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.